This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Skeleton Dance, played by the Edison Concert Band. Hello. And welcome to this special Halloween edition of Backlisted, the podcast that connects the living with the dead. Today you find us entering the gloom of an old London church sometime in the early 1890s. The air is heavy with the smell of incense and our eyes are drawn to a riotous blaze of light in one of the side chapels. At its centre stands an altar surrounded by dozens of bright candles. A man, smartly dressed and middle-aged, kneels in the front pew to his left, a younger woman, robed in black, is bent in prayer. Neither speaks, but after a while, she draws herself up and walks past us out into the church, her pale face lost in thought. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and today we are joined by two revenants. <laughs> Tessa Hadley, back for the second time this year having previously joined us to discuss Elizabeth Bowen back in May. And of course, Andrew the Spook Male, <laughs> returning for his and our sixth Halloween. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Nice to be here. So nice. Tessa, thanks for coming on one yeah. of the Halloween episodes. And also, listeners, we know loads of you really enjoy these episodes. And uh, so do we. Always, <laughs> always exciting to, um, to dip into the uncanny None, none more so than today's choice, which we'll come on to in a moment. Das unheimlich. Unheimlich. Tessa Hadley is the author of eight novels, including The Past, Late in the Day and Free Love, and three collections of short stories. She publishes stories regularly in The New Yorker and reviews for The Guardian and The London Review of Books. And as luck would have it, <laughs> she is the author of the 2002 study Henry James and the Imagination of Pleasure described by one critic as having, quotes, a rare combination of clarity and complexity, qualities which might come in handy later. <laughs> I want to just establish for listeners, however, Tessa, when we asked you to do this, uh, this Halloween episode about Henry James ghost stories, what was it you said? <laughs> I think I may have said that I don't really like ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> we said you're booked. <laughs> Come straight back because we happen to know somebody with who we can have a heated debate. And that person is Andrew Mayle. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. Andrew is the senior associate editor at Mojo Music Magazine and presenter of the fortnightly Mojo Record Club podcast. He writes regularly on music, books, film, 
radio, TV, theatre. Did you do theatre? Never done theatre. Well, probably about 20 years ago, I did some theatre reviews, but no. It's not for me, theatre. It's not very good, is it? Wow. (laughs) Wow, the iconoclast, Andrew Mayle. He's back. The book we're here to discuss is less of a book, more a collection of 10 uncanny tales by Henry James first gathered together under the title The Altar of the Dead and Other Tales to form the 17th volume of the New York edition of Henry James' collected works in 1917 and first published under that title in the UK by Macmillan in 1922. Now, if you are looking to assemble uh, your own collection of The Altar of the Dead, the good news is it is available as an ebook in under that title. And uh, it is generally available, all the stories, clearly, because it's Henry James, are available in various collections. So I'm just going to tell you what those stories are. You might want a pen and a piece of paper, or you might want a, a, a way of making a note. But in The Altar of the Dead, a.k.a. Volume 17 of the New York edition of James's Collected Works, you will find the following tales. The Altar of the Dead, 1895. The Beast in the Jungle, 1903. The Birthplace, 1903. The Private Life, 1893. Owen Wingrave, 1892. The Friends of the Friends, a.k.a. The Way It Came, 1896. Sir Edmund Orme, 1891. The Real Right Thing, 1899. The Jolly Corner, 1908. And Julia Bride, 1908. And the two things to say about this selection of stories is some of them are ghost stories, um, weird tales, and some of them are not. Though we will probably debate as we go along which ones are and which ones aren't. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is to say that the inclusion of Julia Bride, the final story, was a mistake (laughs) because it was supposed to be in volume 18 of the... uh, collected works but there wasn't space in the extent so they bumped it back to volume 17 so it really doesn't quite fit in this collection at all but nevertheless it gives us an overview of all sorts of themes within Henry James's work so we felt here on Backlisted that when Andrew suggested it it would act as a Halloween episode Andrew's speciality but also an overview of James's shorter fiction and writing in general Tessa Hadley's speciality. So we've been thinking ahead, uh, listeners, for several months to try and to try and get this right. Anyway, before we start wandering around dark and empty rooms, lit only by the lambent flickerings of our own consciousness, Andy, <laughs> what have you been reading this week? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I've been reading the biography of Jean Rees that was published a few months ago, written by Miranda Seymour, which is called I Used to Live Here Once. The Haunted Life of Jean Rees. This felt like an appropriate show uh, to mention that on. Regular listeners to this show from the beginning will know the second ever episode about this that we did was on about Good Morning Midnight by Jean Rees. We are huge admirers of Rees's writing and it's exciting that there's a new biography of her and I will say of I've read all the biographies of Jean Rees and this is my favourite to date. I also did an event with Miranda Seymour a few weeks ago down in Hastings, which was totally fascinating for me to sit and listen to somebody who is deeply invested in Reese's life and work. 
And uh, if you are interested in Gene Reese, and of course you are, because you're a backlisted listener and you're interested in one of the best writers of the 20th century, uh, I can strongly recommend Miranda's biography, I Used to Live Here Once. I'm going to read the opening paragraph of it, and then I am going to read you a ghost story by um, Jean Reese herself. This is the very beginning of Miranda Seymour's biography of Jean Reese. Near to the end of her long life, she was almost 90 when she died in May 1979. Jean Reese wrote what her Devonshire neighbour William Trevor praised as one of the finest short ghost stories he'd ever read. She called it, I used to live here once. The dreaming narrator, evidently Reese herself, follows the trail of stepping stones that guide her across a shallow familiar river and onto a rough forest path that leads to her own childhood home. She feels extraordinarily happy. But when she walks across the parched grass to where a boy and girl seem to await her, they register her presence and timid greeting only as a sudden chill in the afternoon air. The children turn away and the story ends abruptly. And I thought, given that this is our Halloween episode, and this is a very short, short story, and it is a, a tiny masterpiece, that I will now read you Jean Reese's I Used to Live Here Once, which is one of the last stories that Reese ever wrote. In fact, almost her penultimate story. So very near the end of her long life, she wrote this this tale. I used to live here once. She was standing by the river, looking at the stepping stones and remembering each one. There was the round, unsteady stone, the pointed one, the flat one in the middle, the safe stone where you could stand and look around. The next wasn't so safe, for when the river was full, the water flowed over it, and even when it showed dry, it was slippery. But after that, it was easy, and soon she was standing on the other side. The road was much wider than it used to be, but the work had been done carelessly. The felled trees had not been cleared away, and the bushes looked trampled. Yet it was the same road, and she walked along, feeling extraordinarily happy. It was a fine day, a blue day. The only thing was that the sky had a glassy look that she didn't remember. That was the only word she could think of, glassy. She turned the corner, saw what had been the old pave had been taken up, and there too the road was much wider, but it had the same unfinished look. She came to the worn stone steps that led up to the house, and her heart began to beat. The screw pine was gone, so was the mock summer house, but the clove tree was still there, and at the top of the steps the rough lawn stretched away just as she remembered it. She stopped, and looked towards the house that had been added to and painted white. It was strange to see a car standing in front of it. There were two children under the big mango tree, a boy and a little girl, and she waved to them and called hello but they didn't answer her or turn their heads. Very fair children, as Europeans born in the West Indies so often are, as if the white blood is asserting itself against all odds. 
grass was yellow in the hot sunlight as she walked towards them. When she was quite close, she called again shyly, Hello. Then, I used to live here once, she said. Still, they didn't answer. When she said for the third time, Hello, she was quite near them. Her arms went out instinctively with the longing to touch them. It was the boy who turned. His grey eyes looked straight into hers. His expression didn't change. He said, Hasn't it gone cold all of a sudden? Do you notice? Let's go in. Yes, let's, said the girl. Her arms fell to her sides as she watched them running across the grass to the house. That was the first time she knew. Good day, isn't it? Mm. Well, there you go. Um, beat that, Henry James. <laughs> <laughs> that story is available in Reese's late collection, Sleep It Off Lady, or in the collected short stories of Jean Reese. And Miranda Seymour's biography, which shares the same title, I used to live there once, published by William Collins, £25, and is in bookshops now. John Mitchinson, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading a memoir by Hilary Mantel called Giving Up the Ghost, which was published um, some years ago. But we did the episode on Beyond Black maybe three which years ago. Which would make a very good Halloween choice as well, mm. yeah. Beyond Black. And mm. I was struck. I remember reading uh, reading bits of the, the, the memoir and being incredibly impressed by, I mean, as you always are, by the, the, the sheer brilliance of uh, Hilary Mantel's prose and the oddness of the narrative and it is a strange narrative it's a narrative that is haunted full of ghosts and i'm going to read a little bit in a moment which i think fits so nicely with the kind of themes of what we're doing today with henry james it starts with her selling a house when she's in her i think she's just turned 50 in norfolk which is a, a, a house that she that her parents had lived in and she sees the ghost of her stepfather so you're immediately in this strange kind of slightly kind of uh, liminal world between between what's real and what's what's imagined or not imagined. Um, she's she never really will. I'm sure this is be this will be a discussion we'll have with Henry James. You never quite know where you stand. Mm. So it talks about her early childhood. Um, it talks about her Catholic schooling where she, you know, classic kind of tale of of uh, difficulties with 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 nuns and teachers uh, growing up in working class childhood in 50s derbyshire uh, it talks about her battles through her 20s with her with her strange medical condition which was finally uh, diagnosed as endometriosis um, but it meant that she was very thin and then became very fat and she had to deal with a lot of people calling her a malingerer including doctors the thing about the memoir that that that, uh, that really strikes you is just the the sheer bravery and the re refusal to be remotely sentimental. She says, mm. "I'm going to read a, a slightly longer passage." She says, "So now I come to write a memoir. I argue with myself over every word. Is my writing clear, or is it deceptively clear? I tell myself, just say how you came to sell a house with a ghost in it." But this story can only be told once, and I need to get it right. Why does the act of writing generate so much anxiety? Margaret Atwood says, the written word is so much like evidence, like something that can be used against you. 
I used to think that autobiography was a form of weakness, and perhaps I hmm. still do. But I also hmm. think that if you're weak, it's childish to pretend to be strong. It's just hmm. full of it's just full of really really sharp and wonderful hmm. insights into it. She it, she's examining her own life as though it's not her own life. I mean, that's the the best way I can describe it. So there's something, there's a passage like a little ghost story here that I just want to read. This, this is the, the central moment of her childhood where everything changes. And I'll let her tell the story because it's, it's so beautifully done. Sometimes you come to a thing you can't write. You've written everything you can think of to stop the story getting there. You know that technically your prose isn't up to it. You say then, very well, at least I know my limitations. So choose simple words, go slowly. But then you are aware that the readers, any kind readers who stayed with you, are bracing themselves for some revelation of sexual abuse. That's the usual horror. Mine is more diffuse. It wrapped a strangling hand around my life, and I don't know how or what it was. I am seven. I am in the yard at Broscroft. I am playing near the house near the back door. Something makes me look up, some shift of the light. My eyes are drawn to a spot beyond the yard, beyond its gate, in the long garden. It is, let us say, some fifty yards away, among coarse grass, weeds and bracken. I can't see anything, not exactly see, except the faintest movement, a ripple, a disturbance of the air. I can sense a spiral, a lazy buzzing swirl, like flies, but it is not flies. There is nothing to see. There is nothing to smell. There is nothing to hear. But its motion, its insolent shift, makes my stomach heave. I can sense at the periphery, the limit of all my senses, the dimensions of the creature. It is high as a child of two. Its depth is a foot, fifteen inches. The air stirs around it invisibly. I am cold and rinsed by nausea, I cannot move. I am shaking as if pinned to the moment. I cannot wrench my gaze away. I am looking at a space occupied by nothing. It has no edges, no mass, no dimension, no shape except the formless. It moves. I beg it, stay, stay away. Within the space of a thought, it is inside me and has set up a sick resonance within my bones and in all the cavities of my body. I pluck my eyes away. It is like plucking them out of my head. Grace runs from me, runs out of my body like a liquid from a corpse. I move from the spot. My body weighs heavy. My feet have to be hauled up from the ground as if they were sticking in gore. I walk out of the sunlight, through the gas place, into the enclosed dimness of the cold kitchen. I say, Mum, I want to come in now. Can I do some drawing? I see myself through her eyes, sweat running from me my cheeks fallen in, my chest heaving to control the thick taste of blood and sick that's in my mouth. I pray, let her not look at me. Yes, she says sweetly, her back turned. Of course you can. It is the best yes I have ever heard. It is the best yes I have ever heard in the course of my life. If I'd been sent out again into the secret garden, I think I would have died. I think my heart would have stopped. When I grow up, I laugh at this. I say I'm like Aunt Ada Doom. I saw something nasty in the woodshed. I say that, like Aunt Ada, I was never the same afterwards. I was always doomy after that. And what was it, anyway? 
I don't know. Something intangible had come for me to try its luck. Some formless, borderless evil that came to try to make me despair. When I'm on my own and I think about it privately, then I scarcely laugh at all. Well, Hilary Mantel was a very great writer. She really was. Yeah, I felt very sad. I'm sure many people did when when they learned of her her death. So, thanks, John, for reading that. That was very. That's that's an incredible piece of writing. So, and very, I think, very opposite to things we're going to discuss later. Oh, on. you've set the mood like, like nobody's business, John. Well, let's keep this party going, <laughs> John. What are we here to talk about? So, Henry James. Uh, as we have already said, loved ghostly tales. His most famous, the novella The Turn of the Screw, is one of his most popular and regularly adapted works. But it's other uncanny stories that we're focusing on today. As you will see, although there are elements of the Gothic in some, what really interested James was the meeting of the real and the imaginary and the complex psychology of apparently supernatural experience. As he wrote in one of his prefaces, a good ghost story must be connected at 100 points with the common objects of life. He also liked the short story form as his ghostly medium, because unlike the complex webs he spins in his novels, the uncanny tale focuses the reader's attention. Its effect is heightened by being read or told in one sitting. They are, he writes, short and sharp and single, charged more or less with the compactness of anecdote. Anyway, so taking this as our lead, we've each chosen one tale to discuss in detail. But um, we're going to start, I think, aren't we, in the usual place, Andy? Yeah. So I think, Tessa, I'd like to ask you first, when you first read or became aware of the work of Henry James? It was at a point where I decided that I should read grown-up serious books. Someone had given me a book token, and I remember going into George's bookshop, which used to be at the top of Park Street in Bristol, where I grew up, and I bought such a funny miscellany of Penguin modern classics that nobody advised me and, and I just chose them for myself. And I can remember it, it was Richard Hughes, High Wind in Jamaica, Aldous mm. Huxley, Chrome Yellow, which I have to say I haven't yeah. revisited, and What Maisie <laughs> Knew. And <laughs> that was a bit of a shock because I couldn't really, I took it home and it had that beautiful Degas painting on the cover of the girl mm -hmm. having her hair, her red hair brushed. And I remember rather clinging to the cover because, understandably, when I opened the book up, I found it immensely difficult. I, I really read it from <laughs> cover to cover without knowing what was happening. Yeah. But I've said something similar about first encountering Elizabeth Bowen, perhaps even as a bit younger. I just feel that reading books that you don't understand what's happening at all is a brilliant initiation because you, they seem to have a message Absolutely. for you that it really is as magnificently complicated and intricate and beautiful and and hard. I'd like to just to pick up the, this thing, Tessa, because I think this is important for listeners who might find James challenging, which a lot of mm. readers do. Mm. I'm so pleased we're talking about The Author of the Dead and the short fiction because it seems to me like a really excellent introduction to the glories and challenges of reading Henry James. Have you found, as you've continued to spend time with James, that it becomes easier to read him, or do you have to always moderate 
your reading speed to 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 no i think john i think it's a legitimate question it's a totally because I, legitimate question i think james requires you as a reader to operate differently Agreed. yeah yeah there's no question of this marvelous thing that can happen to you as a reader that the book as with any author who offers anything worth having really the, the books teach you how to read the books uh, it's extraordinarily true with poetry. That, that I had to learn that quite late. Mm. You have to read the poet to understand the poetry. So I now find James relatively easy to read. I feel I've got the confidence to guess, you know? That's often what it's like. It's like skimming along on the sentences, though slowly, if you can skim slowly, and trusting yourself that you have the right hunch in, in the most obscure sentences of the late style, mm. trusting yourself that you're getting it. And, you know, I have a confession to make, which is that I belonged to a Henry James reading group in London, which was wonderful. And um, there were the top academic interpreters of James. And often we would get to a sentence. And if you stopped and said, what is that sentence saying? They were all puzzled. There aren't people out yeah. there who just think, oh, yes, easy, it's obvious. So you're all making that guess and and just gaining confidence as a reader of him. And then it turns out suddenly you do know what he's talking about and he could only be using that language he's using to say these things. There's no other way of getting hold of them except in that opaque extraordinary convoluted writing i agree i mean i often feel when i'm reading james i'm intuiting where i am in the text yeah i think it's becoming acclimatized to that sense as a reader is very un very unusual mm. i mean i discovered henry james really through reading portrait of a lady and then went straight on to read the three famous later works wings of the dove golden bowl and the, and the europeans and going back to what Tess was saying, reading him is kind of like you're holding on to a very fine thread, but if you hold it too tightly, mm. it breaks. You can't focus in and go, and, and as Tessa said, take every sentence and go, what does this mean? Because you actually lose your way. And the thing that I noticed about the later books is that even though you might call The Wings of the Dove um, a haunted book, they, the late books all feel haunted and ghostly. They have this kind of enigmatic, elusive and elusive quality, opaque. They're subtle, they're shrouded. You're, nothing is ever knowable or certain in them. Um, nothing ever quite comes into focus. You know, did I experience that and did I only imagine it? So even when Henry James isn't writing ghost stories, his texts feel haunted. You know, they have the quality of the ghostly. And also, so you read them and you enter into almost this altered state, which is almost psychedelic. It's quite dreamlike almost. And once you stop to pass the specific meaning of something, you're lost, which feels very, you know, very supernatural at times. And so that was what led me to read, reading a book that I wasn't even aware, edited by Leon Adol, called The Ghostly Tales of Henry James. And so, you know, I kind of read these late books and said, these, you know, these have the quality of hauntings. The, the text is the ghost almost. And so that was what led me to, to seek out the, the actual specific ghostly stories. 
John, what did you? How did you find your reading of, of these short stories compared with the novels that you've read? On the very superficial level, quite similar. I read Maisie and I read Golden Bolt. There's quite a lot of James I haven't read. But this reminds me, one, why I haven't read it, because it, it does take time and concentration, but also how much I how much I look forward to doing it. Reading Henry James seems to me like as, as close as a metaphor as I can think of for how our brains actually, conscious mm. brains actually work. Mm. We're always throwing stuff out, and the stuff that, that comes back, that that our predictions are kind of met, is what is that's the version of reality we all agree on every now and then something comes back that isn't predictable and that's what we really notice and i think he's the master of of doing that of of as you say your the meaning is just always out of reach but you kind of feel you can run you can run with it i found that the stories obviously if you read them i've read the altar of the the dead three times now and i definitely am getting more out of it <laughs> Each time I go back to it, I notice more. I just think James is, he's just remarkable. To what extent is it important that James is writing in the era in which he's writing? This is a question to Andrew and Tessa. There's a kind of Freudian precognition, isn't there? Yeah. So to what extent do we read him with the hindsight of the 20th and 21st century? Because he seems to me to be articulating things that have yet to be articulated. Is Henry James himself, I think, kind of referred to, compared Freud to spiritualism almost, didn't he? I think in, in one piece of writing. And so, which is interesting because obviously they're both popular around about the same time. That sense of kind of communing with the unseen or the unconscious. Mm. And it's interesting that his kind of, his best, ghostly tales are the ones that and i wonder if maybe tessa could answer this they're the ones that come after jekyll and hyde and the picture of dorian gray and they seem to refer to both of those i mean the both the jolly corner and the beast in the jungle you could kind of compare to dorian gray in certain ways you know this idea of a man who lives one version of a life and then is shown mm you know, the other version of a life. But also you get constantly get that sense of doubling through James, you know, that you kind of have people meeting their doubles and their opposites, which you kind of obviously have in, in Jekyll and Hyde, you know. There's that incredible scene in Com Toybin's novel about James the Master, which is an imagined conversation <laughs> between uh, Henry James and Edmund Goss about Wilde. Tessa, where were they, where they going? what is this man doing? Mm. How, how, why is he being so open in his mm. in this thing that we would prefer not to mm. have to have discussed openly? Um, and and you feel that putting one of these James stories alongside Dorian Gray, that actually Dorian Gray is comparatively crude in its thesis yeah 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 and 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 too too crude for the subject matter you know it's it's it feels a little bit i'm being mean here but it feels a bit like a cheap trick whereas Mm. in the jolly corner say the the haunting of the man by the man he might have been you know we're it is such an exploration of the ego and the self and 
time and contingency. So Tessa, we've each chosen a story from the author mm. of the dead to talk about. A, a little bit of me thinks we should do them in chronological order. Is that being? <laughs> I just feel as if the early stories are so different, and that there's a kind of growth or a change. Is that is that okay? Yeah. Which means we would go Owen Wingrave. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, the author of the dead. Yeah. Yeah. The beast in the jungle. Yeah. And then Tessa, you bring us to uh, a rousing finale with the Jolly Corner. Yeah. I, I feel that um, works. It is. I think that's a great sequence. I think that's great. In which case, Andrew, you're up. Well, that's a really good way to do it because in a way we're, we're talking about, if we're talking about Owen Wingrave, we're talking about a story that in a way compared to the other three that we've chosen might be considered as something of a failure. I mean, Virginia Woolf dismissed it as a story that, that misses his, its mark. And I think she's right. It is, on the other hand, the most, of the four stories we're going to discuss, the most easily um, comprehended, yes. isn't it? Yeah. So so you could see this in an anthology of ghost stories yeah. by other writers, and it wouldn't feel out of place. But at the same time, I would, you know, I could see why, you know, when Tessa says, I don't like ghost stories, you know, you can you can see with Owen Wingrave that when you compare it to the others, it feels like you, there's so much less there. I mean, it's basically, it's a story of a, a young, intellectual, sensitive man, as, as James's sort of heroes often are, who objects to the military profession, which is the tradition of his awful family, the tr tradition of the British army. He despises the notion of military glory and decides, a bit like Melville's Bartleby, to opt out mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and, have nothing to do with it and there are the further the story goes on i mean it kind of begins like a comedy of manners it begins almost like one of you know a, a jamesian play is very much based in dialogue um and as you know it's very kind of it's quite witty and it's quite playful but the further that it goes on the kind of darker it gets you realize that there's a point where it turns out that owen wingrave's one of his relatives may have murdered his own son, beaten his son to death. And this house that he kind of has to return to almost as penance is filled with kind of these memories of sort of brutishness and a kind of jingoist desensitization to violence and a kind of morbid obsession with it as well. And he's effectively kind of banished this haunted room in which he is <laughs> the, the, the next, I, mean, I, I say kind of, this is pre kind of Dorian Gray, but kind of the, you know, the, the next morning he is, he is found dead. Spoilers. Well, how can you talk about this story without that, you know, I know element, I know, you know? I know, I know, I know. Yeah. And, but also there's, there's a weird implication in the story, in James's story, that it's some kind of victory over the family that you know he is kind of he's he's kind of preserved as a, as an innocent in death you know that he's kind okay, of okay so uh, so this is for me you've totally persuaded me this is a great story tell me why it isn't a great story i think because it lacks that there's no other way to read it other than the the version i've told you i don't think it's kind of there's no there's no sense that i said earlier of the text having this kind of occluded kind of multi-layered quality there was a it's not ambiguous it was, 
No, there's a brilliant quote that um, I sent Andy late, and I thought it'd be quite good to read it. It's by, by all people, Owen Wister, the author of The Virginian. So in a way, the, the, the father of the cowboy novel. And he said, Henry James writes like a painter. He produces a number of superimposed, simultaneous impressions. He would like to put several sentences on top of each other so that you could read them all at once and get all at once the various shadings and complexities instead of consecutively as the mechanical nature of his medium compels. Mm. And I think the problem with Owen Wingrave, and perhaps as Andy points out, it's only a problem when we compare it to the stories that come later, is that it has that mechanical quality. It has that forward mechanical movement. He has a point to make about militarism and about families and about the sort of, you know, the inheritance of kind of violence and guilt. And he makes it. And there, I would argue that there's, there are maybe other ways to read it, but I'd say there's little more to it than that. I just wanted to ask Tessa, could we just remind listeners why Henry James is writing these stories in this era? Is it he feels artistically driven to do so? For cash. Certainly for cash. I mean, certainly he, yeah. he made lots of money from publishing them. But but he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't also felt their potential for expressiveness for him. There is a quote about Owen Wingrave, though. He, he basically, I can't remember who he says it to. He, he wrote it for a paper called The Graphic. Mm. And he said, I mustn't make it too psychological. They understand that no more than a donkey understands a violin. <laughs> Bernard Shaw thought he copped out by by killing Wingrove. Well, Shaw thought he was basically it was a it was an essay on he was basically Military. preaching cowardice. Yeah, it was an anti-military. No, he, I think George, yeah, George Bernard Shaw said, "Why do you preach cowardice?" You know, and kind of and hated it for that reason. Owen Wingrave was adapted, of course, Andrew by Benjamin Britten by Benjamin yeah. Britten late in his career. Yeah, as a, you'd obviously done Turn of the Screw and was reaching round to, right? and well, thought, yeah, I, I need a Turn of the Screw, right? Yeah. But, but, but how, and we talked about this a bit, but the Turn of the Screw, which is not in um, The Altar of the Dead, but everyone who listens to this, I feel certain if, if they haven't read it, The Turn of the Screw, they have a copy of The Turn of the Screw or they've seen The yeah. Innocents or they know the beats of The Turn of the Screw. What is it about the turn of the screw that works where Owen Wingrave doesn't? I I reread it and at first I was thinking, oh, well, you know, he gives you, he shows you what he's doing. He says, oh, you're moving between these two worlds. You're moving between ghost story and psychological character study. You know, you'll be, you're kind of reading it and you're saying, you know, are they real ghosts? Is it a document of a, a woman losing her mind? You know, and you think you're sort of slightly removed from the story and kind of you're you're above everything but gradually through the language that James uses and the language that the the governess speaks that movement kind of becomes more inhibited the story becomes more claustrophobic and you suddenly realize that rather than being the removed reader you are inside the haunted text. You, you know, it's no longer taking place in Bly Manor, but it's, you know, it's you realize it's taking place inside, you know, the the the, the tangled interiors of the governess's mind, but it's also that you are part of that 
haunting you know you're kind of mm. inside it and you're trapped you know it's a really That's it doesn't begin as it begins as quite a you know because obviously it begins in the tradition of the 19th century ghost story you know gentlemen sitting around telling each other other ghost stories one says oh i have this you know i have this story to tell i have this document and so you have that sense of distance from it that a lot of ghost stories have the one sense of being once removed and then once you're inside the story you're not once removed at all you're, you're it's almost like you're kind of trapped tess are you have we said you're not a fan of the ghost stories Mm. And to t- turn the turn of the screw, talk to me about the t- turn of the screw. So when you read yeah, that, do you I think love, this works despite being a ghost story, or it isn't a ghost story at all? I think it's so successful because it's longer. It's really a novella. It's long, mm. and I haven't completely owned it yet. That not only do I not like ghost stories, but I I don't think James is such a great short story writer as he is novelist, and I think he works better at length and then there are the the jolly corn of the beast in the jungle they're pretty amazing and and i and, and of course i'm absorbed in them they're, they're extraordinary terrain but mostly I, I feel as if his short stories are top heavy they they always begin i actually loved the beginning of owen wingrave which i couldn't remember at all i mm. thought it was a marvelous opening and then then it was all over in a silly slightly mechanical way yeah. so it feels very like a piece of theater doesn't it it kind of feels yeah. like kind of the the, the curtains opening the, the door, door opening yeah. oh he's dead yeah. yeah yeah whereas turn of the screw which is magnificent um but i have to tell you i do give it a very rational reading and i do think it's all inside the governess's head and that it's a brilliant piece about victorian womanhood and the jane eyre mm. fantasy and the fantasy yeah. that somebody lovely and great is watching you and 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 understanding you and and so on and and that there's a sort of sexual pathology playing out which the two mm. children in my very perhaps boring rational reading the two children are completely like they don't they are completely straight and they yeah. are just the victims of the pathology of the grown-ups who are going quietly and noisily mad all around them that was magnificent piece of uh, <laughs> shadow boxing round uh, round owen wingrave to get to the turn of the screen yeah. so it was good also i would say the thing about owen wingrave in the light of the stories we are going to go on to discuss owen wingrave does not have the sense of what we will come on to certainly in the beast in the jungle and the jolly corner of the of the individual haunted by themselves yeah which no. clearly becomes the major james Absolutely. theme that's, later that's on. the thing so the... so john which story have you um... i'm, I'm gonna ultra the ultra of the dead and i think we can i think this is this is actually worked out very well this is classic transition it, it isn't really a ghost story but it is um it is definitely more complex and interesting than Owen Went Wingrave. I don't think it quite reaches the psychological uh, complexity of, of the, the, the two stories we're going on to do. A man who has uh, lost his bride-to-be is in his middle age. He's, he's, he's been faithful to her memory through, uh, through his life. A chance meeting on the street. He meets a, a friend whose wife he hadn't realised had died, and he he realizes that the wife was the person after Mary Antrim, his 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 
one true love was the woman he loved the best and she's dead and he's now married a slightly vulgar American woman and he's suddenly forced to think about death and the his dead. Uh, he finds himself wandering past a Catholic church, goes in there and has the idea that he's going to build an altar, a blazing mountain of light to, to recognise all the people he has loved and who have died. Cutting a, a very long story quite short, he uh, a woman uh, comes and kneels at the same altar with him and they become friends. And in that Jamesian way, they kind of become lovers, but not lovers in the way that we would know it. They, they, they become intimate. Um, I'm not going to tell you that you have to read the story to find out what happens. It's, it's beautifully worked. It's psychologically extremely complex, the relationship between him and the woman. She stops coming because of a revelation. Uh, it turns out that he is adding candles for all the friends of his who are dying. He's at that stage in life where a lot of his friends are dying. But there's one person he can't light a candle for, somebody who's wronged him. And of course, there is a connection because it's a short story, a connection to the woman and she, she stops coming until the very end when there is an amazing and beautiful, one of the I mean, really satisfying endings to a, a story. But I'm, I have Tessa's words ringing in my ears about, about James. It isn't quite what we read Henry James for, the, 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 neat, uh, the neat, tidy. Well, OK, let me ask you then, John. So this is written three years after Owen Wingrove, which yep. we've said is too close, right? Owen Wingrove is too uptight, we, yep. we feel, perhaps, as a story. What is it about the Altar of the Dead that is allowing in more Jamesian dark light? I think that there is a, there is a relationship at the heart of it. Um, and James is never better than when he's, when he's judging the kind of the valency of, 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 of a relationship, particularly between a man and a woman, sort of moving forwards, not second guessing what she's thinking, trying to, it's, it's so there's, I don't think there is that in the same way. It's, it's much more car cartoonish, you know, in Wingrave. There's nothing cartoonish about Altar of the Dead. Yeah. And, and also I would say, Tessa, like what Altar of the Dead is setting up, the thing John's just talked about is setting up that same dynamic occurs in the Beast in the Jungle and the Jolly Corner. And the Jolly Corner. Although yeah. in you know. both of those, what we feel, I think, is that the man, while given a great deal of the story's sympathy and imagination, has is an ego in a way that is problematic, and that the woman is to some extent overlooked or or yes. Whereas in this story, Absolutely. he hasn't quite got that element isn't yeah, developed no. yet. Though the setup with the sort of experiencing complex, tortured man and, and yeah. the, the, the ministering sweetness of the woman is recognisable, but it hasn't taken on that last kind of shove. So what I find very interesting about this is you could almost see these four stories as the same story told over and over again mm. at three or four year mm. intervals. Mm. Yeah. Because they do feature very similar elements um, in, in the male-female discourse that's going on and the power relationships going on, but they're shifting all the time. Each in story fact, in Owen Wingrave, on. the woman is the baddie, if you like. It's Kate yes. Julian yeah. who forces Owen to, to make his show of courage staying in the room overnight where he dies. Yeah. Dies, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And one thing that's probably worth mentioning is Altar of the Dead was written a year after the suicide of a woman called Constance Fenimore Wilson, who was an unrequited love 
of James. And there is, I think, a certain amount of guilt bound up in the altar of the dead, but also a certain amount of woe is me kind of narcissism as well, I think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, I mean, you could argue that um, George Transom is the first goth as well, couldn't you? You know, but um... <laughs> well, why would you? But why would you, Andrew? I know what you mean. I find Altar of the Dead slightly overwrought and morbid. And that's another bit of the Jamesian short stories that I... Tessa, it is is Halloween. I know, I told you I didn't like ghost stories. (laughs) But do do you not feel that Stransom doesn't come out of it well? He does come out as, you know, an overly romantic gothic narcissist you know and you know bathed in the glow of all those candles you know and telling himself that it's it's for for other people i don't know i'm not quite sure i, I really <laughs> have an open mind as to quite how ironic james is in this story at, at the expense of the builder of the altar let me pick that up james is an ironist mm. Mm-hmm. i don't read james as an ironist not really. You know, you're you're giving him an out there. That I, and I'm I don't sure think is... the Ultra of the Dead is ironic. I think he no, absolutely think so. yeah. means it. And yeah. it's a strand in James that perhaps I find the most Edwardian and the most alien. And it isn't well, there. The, earnest, in... the earnestness of, Very earnest. of well, him. It's, it's that, that sort of exaltedness rather than mm. earnestness. It, it's, it's got a mm. touch of something almost hysterical about it and it is yeah. very much of its period something neurasthenic about neurasthenic it, right? yeah. yeah and it's just yeah. not yeah. there in the in the great big late novels even though the language and the exaltedness of the language is the same but that's pulled back all the time by irony surely by lots and lots of salt of irony and that's a little bit of what I, what I'm uneasy with more in the altar of the dead than than any of them I think because the other two strange weird late ones seem to be on such terrain of fascinating psychological depth that they're they're kind mm. of irresistible. Um, neurasthenia, uh, neurasthenia is of course the term that was used. It's very popular in the Victorian era for. Mm nerves that were overstrung mm. uh, uh um often attributed i think to female victims of anxiety or psychological trauma or a, a catch-all term i suppose um mm. uh, but nonetheless you know one of the things that's so interesting about james's protagonists certainly the male protagonists they seem able to access neurasthenia, neurasthenia as it was understood in that era, whether or not they were able to acknowledge it to themselves. When I read them, I think, well, that guy needs to relax. But the, obviously, <laughs> the, the governess in The Turn of the Screw is, yeah, yeah. you know, neurasthenic exactly. yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, I would like to talk a bit about The Beast in the Jungle, which for me, this is my favourite story by Henry James. I was absolutely delighted when um, Andrew said we were going to do The Altar of the Dead for this episode, knowing that The Beast in the Jungle is uh, contained within this. John is laughing because he he said to me earlier, I don't know if we caught this or not, he said to me earlier, God, when I read The Beast in the Jungle, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, this is Andy's. This is like this is the sort of story Andy Miller would like, right? <laughs> it's totally. So... The Beast in the Jungle is the story about a man who, in a nutshell, 
dreads has a presentiment that something awful is going to happen to him is unable to clarify what it might be even with the help mm. of the now um what we've already identified as the jamesian female character named here as may bartram and so john march the protagonist of his spends his life waiting for the worst to happen and again spoilers at the end of his life realizes that the worst that happened was that he spent his life waiting for the worst to happen and that seems to me to be so exquisitely perfect and subject to a queer reading of course queer in all senses weird uh, but also repressed homosexual reading but also seems to me applicable to so much to do with what we fear in our lives what we fear what anxiety this is a story about anxiety it seems to be a very 21st century thing and um i'm going to read a little bit now um because we haven't had read from i'm going to do my best here listeners to try and you know Nobody said when we started this seven years ago that we would have to read Henry James aloud in such a way to make it relatable. But I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a go. So this is just one paragraph from relatively early in the story. But for me, this I get goosebumps towards the end of this paragraph. I've I've practiced it a couple of times. It seems a a brilliant example of the, of how Jamesian prose works that you appear to be ambling through a relatively relaxed terrain. And then suddenly you realise <laughs> you've he's trapped you in a ravine. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll read this to you now. And our protagonists are called John Marcher and May Bartram. And this is the he referred to here is John Marcher. He had thought himself, so long as nobody knew, the most disinterested person in the world, carrying his concentrated burden, his perpetual suspense, ever so quietly, holding his tongue about it, giving others no glimpse of it, nor of its effect upon his life, asking of them no allowance, and only making on his side all those that were asked. He had disturbed nobody with the queerness of having to know a haunted man though he had had moments of rather special temptation on hearing people say that they were unsettled. If they were as unsettled as he was, he who had never been settled for an hour in his life, they would know what it meant. Yet it wasn't all the same for him to make them, and he listened to them civilly enough. This was why he had such good, though possibly such rather colourless, manners. This was why, above all, he could regard himself in a greedy world as decently, as in fact, perhaps even little sublimely, unselfish. Our point is accordingly that he valued this character quite sufficiently to measure his present danger of letting it lapse, against which he promised himself to be much on his guard. He was quite ready, nonetheless, to be selfish just a little, since surely no more charming occasion for it had come to him. Just a little, in a word, was just as much as Miss Bartram, taking one day with another, would let him. He never would be in the least coercive. 
and he would keep well before him the lines on which consideration for her, the very highest, ought to proceed. He would thoroughly establish the heads under which her affairs, her requirements, her peculiarities, he went so far as to give them the latitude of that name, would come into their intercourse. All this naturally was a sign of how much he took the intercourse itself for granted. There was nothing more to be done about that. It simply existed, had sprung into being with her first penetrating question to him in the autumn light there at Weather End. The real form of it should have taken on the basis that stood out large was the form of their marrying. But the devil in this was that the very basis itself put marrying out of the question. <laughs> his conviction, his apprehension, his obsession, in short, was not a condition he could invite a woman to share. And that consequence of it was precisely what was the matter with him. Something or other lay in wait for him amid the twists and turns of the months and the years, like a crouching beast in the jungle. It signified little whether the crouching beast were destined to slay him or to be slain. The definite point was the inevitable spring of the creature, and the definite lesson from that was that a man of feeling didn't cause himself to be accompanied by a lady on a tiger hunt. Such was the image under which he had ended by figuring his life. Have we ever read better prose than that on this podcast, John, isn't it? in the last seven years? And you have to remember, he's dictating that. When I he's know. writing at this point in his life. Tessa, please explain to the listeners what, what, what you've just said, because this is incredible. At a certain point in the 1890s, he stops writing by hand. I think he's having arthritic problems. Gout. And he he's got gout. Gout. Is it gout? And he employs a secretary, first of all, a young Scottish man. But I think by the time of um, The Beast in the Jungle, it's Miss Bozenquet or Miss Bozenquet. And she has a Remington typewriter, I think. And she takes his dictation down. So those sentences and that extraordinary flow and that clauses and subclauses is coming out verbally. First of all, one's just a Astonished that anyone could hold that in their mind and say it. But secondly, I actually think if you can imagine teaching yourself that discipline, I think it helps explain the flow. I think, I mean, yeah. I, listening to it read out loud, I often think it's clearer than reading mm. it on the page. Yes, how interesting. Yeah. I agree. Really I agree completely. I agree. I even felt while I was reading that I was mm. I had one of those moments thinking, mm. oh wait, I understand this. Yeah. Yeah. As I yeah. read it out loud, I understand it. Yeah. But also the the rhetorical shift that happens in that paragraph, mm. I would say, that is a verbal thing. It's a kind of closing in on that image of the of the beast there. Yeah. We're we're yeah. sort mm. of we're yeah. this is why I say we're ambling along. We're sort of it seems quite laconic and quite uh, circuitous. And then suddenly we're yeah. being taken to a point of now stop, now think, now, you know, that idea when the beast in the jungle, is he going to eat or be eaten? <laughs> to, to pick up a metaphor which seems quite rich, um, which creates suspense in the story. 
you know it kind of you mm. know, kind of telegraphs that 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 division early on so you yeah brilliant story Andrew and aside about the queer readings of uh, James I was talking to um recently talking to Dr Dickon Edwards former backlisted guest who wrote his PhD on camp modernism in fiction and had a whole chapter on Henry James in his PhD that he jettisoned in the end but he tells me that during the James revival in the 50s and 60s the 1950s and 60s particularly the reading of him as a queer author English students referred to Henry James as Hatty Jokes did they (laughs) (laughs) oh that's too perfect isn't isn't that fantastic isn't that fantastic I know Hatty Jokes but do we need to read I, I want to ask you do we need to read The Beast in the Jungle like that you know what is the metaphysical nature of that story for me for me you know i i find that sense of dread the dread mm. within the beast in the jungle is the mm. not merely the dread perhaps but the blithe attempt of um john march the protagonist to lighten uh, whatever this thing is that he feels he's carrying around with him. Um, and as you said, Tessa, earlier, we have the Jamesian heroine here acting as what? Acting as beard or um, or enlightener of, the, of, 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 you know, or, yeah. or martyr is the female character is almost a martyr yeah. to the to the yeah. protagonist, yeah. right? I mean, she's the one who gets it. She's got it. Yeah. And she, yes. she knows better than him. And she, from such an early point in the yeah. story yeah. as well, yeah. you know, yeah. she knows. Yeah. yeah. So and can't, in a way, can't bear to <laughs> tell yeah. him. That yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe that would have been a hard, hard thing to tell yes, somebody, exactly. wouldn't it? An, an impossible but Especially thing when he thinks there's a part of him that thinks that he's waiting for something rare and strange. But he thinks he's heroic. Because he's got yes. this magnificent, dreadful yeah. psychic secret, and it's pathetic, yeah. deliberately pathetic, mm. that it's actually just that nothing will ever happen. And although it's given that Jamesian rhetorical kind of height, there's definitely some pathetic irony of, with how it really and, turns and, out. And, and Tessa, how does James use pace in these later stories? Because mm. we're now. So, so, so we've talked about the beast. And so, the beast in the jungle is nineteen oh three. There's a clear shift between this story and the earlier stories we've mm. been. You know, you, you as a great writer of short stories, what is he? How does he do this here? Is he kind of the dramatic beats seem to me to come too late, and yet they they work so magnificently because you're. Are you with the protagonist? Are you ahead of him, or yeah. are you? He's just, um, in in one sense, he's old enough and great enough and he's through the difficult period of his writing in the 1890s, he's, he's broken into an extraordinary place where he feels it doesn't even matter if many people follow him. So one, one feels that the master writer taking his time and that and the length is good for the stories. But it's funny, you said something earlier about how good it is when your piece that you read out arrives at the beast in the jungle. And I was thinking as I read these last, these two late long stories, how the music of even a paragraph or two works with 
such difficult abstraction that we're really having to focus all our head and consciousness on understanding what, what he's saying. And then he delivers an actual animal and an actual yes. jungle or yeah. an actual yeah. orchestra and an actual conductor or an actual, yeah. the bits I've, I've got from the Jolly Quinny, there were a, a, a staircase and a black and white hall floor. And he just paces the abstraction with the realist precision, the brilliant realisation of stuff in his paragraphs with, with this grace that redeems it. If it was all like the first 10 sentences you read out, we would just die <laughs> of, yeah. of its ungroundedness. Yeah. But also the the appearance of the Duanio Russo, the tiger, right? The the yeah. kind of the, yeah. the the beast in the jungle right there mm. Mm. forces you to go back and reread those first ten sentences and think Absolutely. we yes. are being Absolutely. paced, we are yeah. being led, we are being yeah. being yeah. Um, prepared for the yeah. the manifestation of this thing that eventually um arguably John Marcher realizes but even i think yeah. it's i think the the revelation in the beast in the jungle is the reader has arrived there beforehand i think that i think james mm. wants the reader mm. to that so you're so what you're witnessing is mm. what marcher's uh defeat obtuseness you know it's yeah. it's not it's not as simple as going the moment of revelation it's not a moment of revelation is it it's a moment of mm. as you say defeat yeah the reader is more like may yeah yeah when he says the escape the escape would have been to love her then he would have lived but your realization mm. as a reader is but he didn't love her yeah. you know if if yeah. he'd have loved her he'd yeah. have loved her yeah yeah, yeah. You know, and that leaves it even more empty, you know, and there's something pathetic about him grabbing onto that, even, mm. you know, the mm. this because if love had been there, love would have been mm. there. That isn't an intellectual exercise. I point, find John you know? March to be neither likable nor relatable. <laughs> 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 and that's to Henry James's great credit. Last story. Tessa. So so the Beast in the Jungle is nineteen oh three. And we should say mm. that James James is he writes up until the end of his life, doesn't he? He writes up until nineteen sixteen, so he's still active. Actually, he's very thrown. Ridiculous thing to say. He's very thrown by the war, and he has two weird late novels on the go, both of which he abandons, feeling the war makes them irrelevant, ridiculous. So he he doesn't write to the very he end, doesn't. but he does. You know, yes. But he's still developing the late style. I mean, we we've yeah. referred repeatedly to the late style. We should say for listeners, yeah. the late style is this incredibly difficult. I'm not going even going to mince my words. It's difficult. No, it requires you difficult. to like. Yeah. So the final story in this collection, Julia Bride, I have, which was written in 1908, the same year as the Jolly Corner, I found almost impenetrable. I yeah. tried my hardest, Andrew, Tessa, John, and Nikki, and I I came away thinking I didn't understand that, and I'm 54. Mm. I, I really tried. The Jolly Corner, I did not feel that with, which is the story you're going to no. talk about. Yeah. So this yeah, is the yeah. latest of the stories from this collection. Um, what works in this story so fantastically well? I I think it's partly because the scene of the story, though it's a long story, 
is very limited. It's it's a, an American man who grew up in a big, lovely old house in New York, but left it as a very young man, hasn't been back for 30 odd years and has presumably done a Jamesian thing and been in Europe and been artistic and subtle and had sensibility and yet actually drawn rent from this property. He comes back to an America, as James did, just the year before he wrote this, I think. James went back to America. It wasn't 33 years, but it was a long time, and found a, a, a place, a world, a new economy, yeah. a new population that was unfathomable to, to James and to the character in this story, to Spencer Bryden in this story. And, and he then... He has his house. His house is empty of furniture. It has, I think, I think it's four stories. I'm not quite sure. And he's, he becomes addicted to going there at the end of every evening. He's just staying in a hotel and walking around in this house. And he begins to think he's pursuing the, the self that would have been if he stayed. Mm. And he would have been cruder, coarser, richer. He'd be a billionaire practical, wounded. He's got these that we do eventually encounter. This is a spoiler, but, you know, otherwise the story doesn't make any sense. He encounters this other self in an extraordinary closing couple of pages. And the man has these two fingers shot away. So he's been the victim of violence and violent. And, yeah, that's it. It's a, it's a brilliant story that no doubt has some sexual story in there, but that just can't limit the implications. It's about contingency. It's about the fact that if you grow up in one place, you might have your fingers shot off and make a lot of money. And if you grow up in another place, you'll just be reading Henry Jones novels and, and looking <laughs> at Tintoretto. And that, that makes all the difference. That, what's that brilliant thing that Clifford Geertz says? Um, what's incredible is the difference difference makes. Yeah, and I I love mm. that, and I think that's part of what this story Te is about. Tessa, is this a ghost story? Not. I don't know if it's a ghost story. I'll have to revise my original sense that I don't like <laughs> ghost stories because I do love this. I I think all it. I mean, it it is quite hyperventilating and perhaps even overwrought, but it's all earned by this fantastic conceit about self and experience. And the, very interestingly, when he does encounter this, his other possible self, he refuses to recognise him. He thinks that could yes. be me and we need, we yes. need the intelligent yeah. woman to yeah. say, yeah. no, no, I liked him too. It could have Which been I quite you. fancied him too, yeah. Yes, yeah. I quite fancied him too. Yes, yeah. Is that a Jamesian so a sentence, John? Story. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is. To be honest, it certainly is not, Andy. Certainly. But do you know not. what I think? I really love best, and what does it for me? And it's maybe just because I'm a houses houses in fiction person. It's the house, and it's him wandering around this house with the Beautiful. shutters closed and yeah, then the yeah. shutters open yeah. and it's the staircases unfolding and the vistas through the room and there's this terrifying moment where I have to say, all right, it's a ghost story and it's amazing. 
where there is a door that was left, he knows oh. he left open, and then yeah. suddenly yeah. it's closed. So how tiny is that? Sure. Yes, and absolutely. Yet, how terrifying. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And he doesn't dare go back to see whether it's open again. That's It is. It's a marvellous thing, actually. Virginia Woolf is really good on um, James, and I think she understands and loves all the things that Tessa loves, but also embraces the idea that these are ghost stories. And she says of James's characters, his characters with their extreme fineness of perception are already half out of the body. And I think that is fantastic, you know, because that in a way brings those two things together. And it was kind of maybe what I was kind of reaching forward at the start about how there is a way in which these are almost in terms of the, the way the sentences and the way in which James's characters perceive things are almost out of body experience. And yet, I, I so agree with you, but look how at the end of every paragraph we have a thing. Oh, we yes. Have stuff. Absolutely. And equally at the yeah. end the of anchor. the story, the yeah. anchor. And at the end of the story, we have the physicality yeah. of that other self that was or wasn't. Yeah. And and his ravaged, sort of gnarled body and his and his hands in front Blackened of his face. face. So so yeah. in the end, oh, suddenly it's come to, into my head that lovely John Dunn line, you know, we must turn to bodies, else a great prince in prison lies. So James knows that it, it that bodies are, are going to be yes. that, where where the story finds its kind of resting place. And with that, we must leave the intricate, uncanny world of James's tales behind. Huge thanks to Andrew for suggesting them to Tessa for returning from the other side so soon, <laughs> to Nikki Birch for extracting our ectoplasm of content from the ether <laughs> and to Unbound for all the dust and incense. You can download all 172 previous episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. For less than George Stransom's weekly spend on candles, lot listeners get two extra lot listed a month. Our very own blazing shrine, where we three kneel, genuflect and ruminate endlessly over the meaning and ultimate significance of the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. Who would not want to pay money for that? <laughs> <laughs> no one. Uh, lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. This week's new patrons include Veronica Ferdman, and we're also delighted to welcome to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier in, in the backlisted firmament, Joe Darling. Oh, thanks, Joe. Joe is also one of our most loyal and supportive patrons, so particular pleasure for us. Thank, Thank you, you, Joe. Thank you for all your generosity and to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling it. Uh, us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. I would like to ask Andrew Mail, is there anything on the weird tales of Henry James that we haven't covered that you would like to say, a final parting comment? I don't think so. I think that was magnificent, absolutely fantastic, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you, everyone. And uh, Tessa, is there anything you would like to add that we haven't covered? No, I seem to have um, given up my my position as a hater of ghost stories. Oh, and- well, <laughs> there we go. Hey! All right. My work is done. Oh, my God. We've conclusively reached the end of Henry James. That's quite an achievement, everybody. We've, yeah. we've actually <laughs> closed it off. 
John, is there anything? We found the anchor at the end of the sentence. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, John, anything else to say? I was just going to say it's Halloween, sleep tight. And as Henry James definitely wouldn't say, for the night is long and full of terrors. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And Tessa and Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, we oh, we hope you, you enjoy reading these, everybody. We This has been one of my favourite Halloween episodes we've ever done. So thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Tessa. Brilliant. Skeleton Dance, bullied by the Edison Concert Band. <laughs> Andrew, normally we'd ask you to, there'd be a Gene Kelly film, we'd ask you to compare uh, The Altar of the Dead to. But it seems right, uh, given you mentioned Hattie Jakes earlier, that we ask you, Andrew Mayle, if The Altar of the Dead were a carry-on film, which carry-on film would it be? Oh, um, okay. I think it has to be carry-on screaming. <laughs> in which, <laughs> in Audible. which, in which... The middle-aged Dr. Orlando Watt, Kenneth Williams, resides in a place resembling a mausoleum with an attractive woman he is unable to love, Fenella Fielding, and a collection of bodies suspended in a state between the living and the dead. Dr. Watt, unable to find peace, is ultimately reconnected with the rapture of life when he falls into a vat of petrifying liquid with his one true love, the Egyptian mummy, Rubatiti. <laughs> The story ends with Dr. Watt's face showing the whiteness of death. His final words, frying tonight, are ultimately <laughs> ambiguous in the classic manner of Lake James. <laughs> no further questions, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.